We're good. Hey, man, how's it going? Good, how are you? Fine, thanks. Yeah. All right. So welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Point Counterpoint podcast. I'm your host, Chris Wright. And today, as a guest, I've brought on Zach Leary. And so I'll let you introduce yourself. Hey, yeah, well, that's who I am. I'm Zach Leary. It's nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, first of all, I got to start out with uh, with the question of, you know, what was it, what was it like, you know, be, being the son of um, a man that was both very, very villainized by many people, but also very, you know, lauded for a lot of his research that was so important for a lot of this, uh, you know, psychedelic research and the like? Uh, well, it's kind of a complicated answer uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, my first, you know, growing up when you're a little kid and you become aware that you're, uh, father is famous for something that is difficult to understand. It's not like he was famous for being an actor or a movie star mm -hmm. or, you know, and, and it was it was kind of abstract, you know, so I spent years and years just sort of not really understanding what it is that he did. Um, and and the first time I, I, I did, um, I was, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 years old and I was on a, he was acting in a film and uh, he brought me along to the movie set and I was standing on a movie set and this crew member was standing next to me and just this, this little kid you know and uh, the crew member said god I can't believe they allowed this evil man to be in this movie mm. and I just remember going wow why would they say that about my father you know it's like such a such a weird thing to say, you know, what did he ever do? What did he do to you, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and that sort of like began um, the relationship of, uh, or the process of trying to understand what, what it is, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've spent my whole life uh, making sense of it and being at peace with it and uh, ultimately being practiced. And would, would you say that generally it was a, a positive experience having that kind of man in your life uh, that was, you know, such an influential role? And, uh, you know, how was it that, it, that he, like, uh, shaped your opinions on uh, this topic? Yeah, it's ultimately, it's a very positive experience. Uh, and I, it would be disingenuous to, to say it otherwise. Um, I mean, you know, his primary uh, his mission in life was to empower the individual to uh, create their own reality, you know, and find their own, find their own purpose um, and their own meaning in, in their work and in the universe around them. And, uh, you know, again, as a little kid, that's a very difficult thing to understand when you're just trying to deal with mundane things like finishing your homework on time or something you know um so it and, and he died when i was 22 and which is a long time ago now um so i would say now i'm probably as i get older i'm more uh i find it to be much more of a positive experience than i did when he was alive ironically mm -hmm. yeah yeah totally you know um 
So uh, as many people are aware, uh, Timothy Leary was a, a major uh, psychedelic advocate. And, uh, you know, this leads me into uh, the first um, uh, the first user submitted, first fan submitted question that I wanted to get to. And it was, uh, this is from Julia oh, from cool. Minnesota. And it was, uh, uh, what is the most common thing that the general public gets wrong about psychedelics? The most common thing that the general public gets wrong about psychedelics. Um, uh, I think buying into the hysteria, you know, there's been so many, uh, it's become such a part of the, the gestalt and kind of like, you know, the cultural fabric to, um, to think that, uh, you know, uh, the use of psychedelics will lead to, you know, you going crazy, you not being able to come back. You know, that's the thing that I get most often. It's like, oh my God, am I ever going to come back? You know, what if I never permanently recover? Or, or very kind of extreme uh, kind of urban legends, you know, that are just uh, kind of freak tales of jumping off buildings or, you know, thinking mm. you can fly or things like that. You know, it's like the extreme sort of... Uh, um the cases of when things go wrong have um sort of become an unfortunate part of the story and uh so i, I think that's uh, what most people get wrong is that they associate uh, neuroticism and mania and uh, uh you know prescribed schizophrenia as sort of like part of as part of the experience um but that said, you know, we're living in a, you know, a modern age of uh, the new psychedelic renaissance is, uh, mm -hmm. has dispelled a lot of those rumors and, and shown um, that the research happening in therapeutic communities, uh, you know, the stuff going on at Johns Hopkins, NYU, the stuff with MAPS and, uh, and uh, the Pentagon, the Veterans Administration, you know, are really uh, dispelling those rumors. So that's great to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we really are in an age when a lot of these conceptions that we that we used to think about them, like uh, you know, they they turn you crazy, and uh, it's possible you go into a trip and you can never come out, and uh, they lead to psychosis. Yeah. But a lot of that's changing, especially, and we're starting to see more and more research come out where we're seeing the the positive benefits, not only of uh, recreational use but also medical use. For example, like a, uh, absolutely, and it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was I was just gonna mention a couple of studies that I've looked that I've seen. Like there's one, like there's one where um, they, they took these rats and they uh, they uh, microdosed DMT into them, uh, and uh, they were actually able to see decreases in instances of anxiety in them, and uh, also the studies of PTSD and MDMA have been very successful when paired with uh, psychotherapy. Yeah, you're right. Those are great, great studies to, to cite, you know, and uh, I'm uh, especially pleased that, you know, so many of these studies are coming from places like Johns Hopkins and, and NYU, you know, very, uh, you know, it's no longer uh, fringe science coming out of, you know, fringe institutions, you know, it's, it's, it's gotten mainstream and um, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to see. Mm -hmm. 
like what would you say are some of the the biggest benefits of you know recreational use of these substances well uh well before i answer that question you know i want to preface it you know because i uh want to take a very cautious approach much like you know i guess my predecessors have and that uh i don't i don't subscribe to uh indiscriminate use and nor do i believe that everybody is a candidate for psychedelic therapy mm -hmm. use. okay you know um you know and i have to be objective say that you know um and deciding whether or not you are a candidate if you fit uh you know the mold or the prescription is something that only really you can decide you know and if you are not honest about that um the results might not turn out well you know that's up to you um so that said it's really important to you know uh take a self-prescribed set and setting kind of course and look at all the dynamics therein um and you know if all those boxes are checked and all that lines up uh, i mean the benefits can be anything from uh healing past traumas to improving interpersonal relationships to maximizing your own potential as a human being to um you know finding more contentness and less anxiety um and then there's also the flip side of all of that which is sort of more the terence mckenna model which is uh, you know like you listen to i've been listening to a lot of old terence tapes lately for the first time in a long time and you know terence isn't talking much about uh therapeutic research he's talking about visiting the outer realms and what happens when you take heroic doses on, on dmt and 5-meo and you are uh, on a, the outer limbs of existence you know and the value that that happens there too um and getting into those discussions becomes very difficult because it's hard to describe in english <laughs> what it is that happens when you're there um, but that's not to say it's not valuable. And what do you, what do you think of some of these uh, ideas that people say, especially with you know DMT? But I've also seen people say it with other things like mescaline and and the like, um, where they talk about you know like it it goes into like another universe, you know, and you can see different entities. Do you think do you think this is just a, do you think it's simply just a hallucination, or do you think there is something else no i don't believe that it's just a hallucination mm -hmm. i believe that um uh, i just have to look at uh the basic neuroscience around um around it and how the human brain is mapped and it's that we have a very uh, limited frequency parameter you know to exist mm -hmm. as human beings we can't hear everything that's around mm -hmm. us we can't see everything that's around us uh, therefore, our emotional well-being and our emotional intelligence, you know, also has certain parameters that has to keep us in line to exist in this world. If we could see and hear everything that was around us, we would be blinded by UV light, radio waves, and different frequencies. You know, it's just it would be overwhelming. And uh, DMT and five me all those, you know, the kind of the more uh, upper echelon of the psychedelic matrix. You know, they just turn the dial up. 
Um, and I'm of the opinion, um, again, you know, from Terence McKenna's school, that uh, that is not fake. That is not artificial. That that has been there all along, and they just allow you to experience that. Mm -hmm. um, and within that comes, uh, you know, a great amount of tradition, a great amount of uh, panic. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, th threatening your very existential nature is not uh it's not for the faint of heart mm -hmm. yeah yeah um so um th th that's another thing that um that i've seen a lot of people say about uh these different trips is like it's you know it it's it's humbling and it helps to l lower your ego and to be you know realize your more of your place in the universe, a more accurate picture of it anyway. Yeah, that's yeah. a great, it's a, it's a, it's a great sentiment. And as many times as we've heard it, um, it is an essential thing to remember. And when it happens to you, it's a very difficult thing to, to make peace with because, you know, uh, uh, you know, becoming one, you know, and what that means to become one and truly present and to, experience ego death um it can go so far to where it can make you feel like well you know what's the point none of this matters you know we're we're insignificant but that's not true you know how we uh you know what we do with our time here on the planet and uh you know how we give to others and affect others lives and uh what we do with it is important mm -hmm. yeah uh, another thing i want to to touch on was, um, what do you think about um, things like uh, psilocybin and how they can increase one's, uh, you know, spiritual experiences, like, for example, with the Good Friday experiment? And so what's your idea on the significance of that? So, Yeah, no, the Good Friday experiment was was great. And, uh, and uh, you know, again, Johns Hopkins just did a, a, a new version of that recently. Oh. Um, yeah, with uh, uh, infusing their divinity school and, um, you know, uh, using a lot of, um, uh, um, you know, esteemed uh, priests and, um, you know, kind of predisposed divinity types and kind of mapping their different view of what um, the mystical means against uh, their experiences on psilocybin. Um, it is a it's a fantastic question and i think it's one that has to um, you have to look at it um through the lens of thousands of years of research you know these experiences go as far back as recorded history goes you know the only indigenous cultures who did not report to have mystical experiences as a result of plant medicines were the eskimos because it's too cold to grow anything up there, you know, but they're the only ones, you know, um, psychedelics appeared in, um, Native American cultures, South American cultures, even as far North as Siberia, you know, um, and those, uh, and what, what's really interesting is that when all those mystical experiences, um, are sort of cataloged and translated now, um, they all share similar traits to them. You know, why is that? 
why do ancient you know indigenous cultures that had nothing to do with each other that were separated by oceans and continents you know why were there mystical experiences why did they have so much in common you know um and i just think that is because uh you know it takes a lot it takes a lot of practice it takes a lot of uh work it takes a tremendous shift to experience the divine mm -hmm. uh, whether that is through meditation yoga um, chanting prayer and psychedelics you know it it, it requires a lot um, and these are fantastic places to to get to and to experience i was not aware of the psychedelics in uh, siberia do you, do you know what uh what plant it was that uh, that they used up there it's psilocybin well oh, psilocybin okay yeah there's a yeah, yeah yeah there's this there's a strain of mushroom um i forgot exactly what strain um uh, I'm forgetting specifically. I'm not uh, a scholar on the <laughs> various strains of psilocybin documents, okay. but it was one of them. I and mean, just for the listeners, uh, there is a great recent article that um, Double Blind, if you're familiar with the new magazine called Double Blind, which is a magazine devoted to modern psychedelic research. They're new, they're, mm -hmm. you know, only a year old, okay. but they put out a, gr a great, great article on that called The Definitive History of psychedelic mushrooms and i recommend it for everyone i'll make a note of that mm. okay okay uh th there's one uh, example that i'd like to ask you about and it was uh the the, the founder of american psychology uh, psychology uh william james uh at at one point uh, wrote, was writing about his use of nitrous oxide and how uh, it helped him to, uh, it was the only way that he could understand the, the writings of the philosopher Hegel. So I was wondering, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you believe uh, about the way that psychedelics and other hallucinogens can influence like, your insight into these matters? Say it again. Uh, I, I just you cut out a little bit about William James. Oh, sorry. Uh, so William, William James experience sorry. with nitrous oxide as it yep. relates to what? Uh, so uh, he said that he could only understand the works of the philosopher Hegel when he was using nitrous oxide. <laughs> I don't know if that's a testament to nitrous oxide or if that's a testament to, to Hegel. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of the two, man. You know, I mean, shit. Uh, I mean, go, go figure, you know. I mean, I could only, uh, I mean, I only really understood ancient Gnosticism after my experiences with masculine. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean. The answer for that is, is up for grabs, you know, I think, uh, I do think um, uh, certain little departments of knowledge, certain aspects of knowledge, certain um, uh, little like, you know, wells and, uh, you know, kind of infant tanks of knowledge um, are sort of hard coded into the psychedelic experience. And that is why, um, reports of the psychedelic experience, especially with plant medicines, like uh, 
like mushrooms and mm. and and masculine peyote and things like that um ones that have ancient lineages um you know the insights that they had into culture and to self-determination and to uh, spiritual awareness they seem to be very similar over the years you know uh and so it's sort of like why that insight of those reports from you know uh um, south american cultures from a few hundred years ago are very similar to reports that we have now uh and you know, my only conclusion that I can draw is that uh, you know psychedelics have an amazing knack for uncovering what could previously not be uncovered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, another question I had was, um, what do you believe is the most uh, overrated or underrated uh, psychedelic, or the most overrated uh well my answer for that's not going to be very popular uh i think it's ayahuasca uh i ayahuasca is a powerful and fantastic you know worthwhile thing to do but i don't think that um for the western mind I don't think that the um, the whole concept of um, going into ayahuasca ceremony with a shaman can unlock visions or realizations that are any different than the ones experienced on LSD mm -hmm. by yourself <laughs> or with, or with a friend in the middle of nature, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's been there's been a lot of emphasis put that has um, I won't say emphasis, but uh, it's become very trendy, I should say, for you know, to do these ayahuasca pilgrimages that you have to go down to Peru and experience it in and under that setting, that set setting to to have the full realization. And I, I'm just not, I'm not convinced either way. I know that answer is, is very unpopular for a lot of the mystics out there. Um, so that's overrated. Uh, underrated? Did, did you also ask that? Underrated? I did, I did yes. Um, hmm. uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if any of them are underrated. It seems that every psychedelic drug has its own fan club, that's for mm -hmm. sure. Um, although I, I will say, and I'm saying this out of my own personal experience because I have not done it. Um, I haven't done San Pedro. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I only hear little kind of pockets of discussion around San Pedro work. Um, and everybody I know who's done it just says it's, it's a game changer. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd really like to explore that. I, I don't know much about Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, the, the thing you said about ayahuasca and how, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's not 
really worth it to go all the way down to Peru and go through the whole process with the shaman. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the, the story where um, one of the followers of the Buddha uh, went through all these different processes and, you know, he finally learns how to walk on water and he comes over to the Buddha and he's like, look, I've, I finally learned, learned to walk on water. And he says, but the fairy is only a nickel. So, you know, you don't have to go through all those steps if there's an easier way. Well, yeah, that's a great, that's a great story. It's a great koan. Um, uh, and Krishnadas, one of my favorite modern spiritual teachers, who's, uh, who's not his uh, sacred song and chant, he sings kirtan, but, um, you know, the has gotten quite popular as sort of from the Ramdas Neenakroli Bamba lineage, you know, says, uh, all the time that people are always coming to him and say, oh my God, Krishnadas, I have to get to India so I could experience, you know, the Guru's grace. I have to go there because that's where it is. And he's like, well, no, don't focus on Dharmasala, focus on Brooklyn, mm. <laughs> um, which is a great answer. You know, it's like, uh, and it just all comes back to the idea that, um, that every major spiritual tradition says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within. Um, that if you are seeking external, uh, you know, external places that must bring you closer to divinity, uh, and if you can't do it otherwise, then maybe there's something missing. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with going out to Peru to ayahuasca, it's great. Mm -hmm. If you feel cold, do it. Yeah. And if you feel like you need to go to Dharmasala to go get closer to your guru, do it. I'm not saying don't, I'm just saying that it's probably not, you know, an essential ingredient that <laughs> that's going to, you know, break the bank either way. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you don't live long enough to do everything a hard way. So you could go all the way down to Peru and go through the whole process or if there's, or if you can just take an LSD or, you know, what, or any other uh, psychedelic drug that's easier to do. You can do that instead. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just saying that, like, you know, we're, yeah, but we're, we are, we are products of the West, you know, we're not born into these indigenous Peruvian cultures who have been using ayahuasca, you know, as ritual for uh, hundreds of years, you know, so it doesn't like we're taking this Western modality and just like, hey, you go down to ayahuasca, down to Peru, and all of a sudden, you become part of the, you know, the tribal lineage. Um, I just don't think it's that simple. I mean, sure, you get to dabble in it and experience the wisdom of it, and it's it's great, it is, but I just don't think it's, uh, you know, juxtaposing the two cultures is, is that simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that I wanted to get to was, uh, so, so you teach bhakti yoga, so I was wondering, uh, so like, what, what would you say are the differences are between that and, uh, you know, traditional yoga that people uh, think of? Great uh, uh, misunderstanding in the West is that yoga is an exercise routine. Mm -hmm. You know that the physical part of yoga, you know, what we call asana, is is yoga in and of itself. Um, and doing asana is great exercise. It's a great practice, but it is not yoga. Yoga is a complete science of understanding the human connections relationship with itself and the relationship with the divine uh and bhakti yoga is the yoga of love and devotion 
So it's based around the idea and the practice of making all your actions uh, an offering to the divine. So you're not separating the mundane from the profound, that even the mundane can be an act of, of the divine. Like when you're cooking food, for instance, I'm just citing a very basic everyday thing. When you're cooking food, cook it with love, cook it with heart, you know, offer it to, to the god, to the goddesses. And, and that's what bhakti yoga is. It's about uh, making your life into an offering. So you are a servant of the divine. And in turn, you develop a personal relationship with the divine that will always be there for you, that will continue to feed your soul and your heart. Uh, and, and within different schools of bhakti yoga, uh, the exercise you know, portion, the asana is part of it. Uh, asana is a great practice, but uh, don't think of it as that if you become all of a sudden this great asana yogi and you're doing complicated poses twisting your body into a pretzel that does not mean you have achieved moksha you know it's uh it's just it's one part of it uh and for anybody listening if to kind of get a breakdown of what uh true eight limb yoga is about uh patanjali uh the great scholar patanjali um, um uh broke down what ashtanga eight limb yoga is really about okay um, and th this leads me to uh, the next uh, listener question, which is, which comes from Nico from France, and he wants to know, uh, you know, what are some ways that a beginner can get into this practice of yoga? Like, what are some ways to start the practice? Uh, well, first, uh, I think it's about first find what it is that you want to get out of it in the first place. Uh, and that is up to you, you know, do you want a, a healthier sense of spiritual contentment? Do you want to feel closer to God? Do you want to have healthier relationships in your life? Do you want a better body? You know, whatever your, your intention is, establish that and then try different things out. Uh, I mean, it took me a while to find my lineage that made sense for me you know i dabbled in in buddhism i dabbled in um, uh, asana and vinyasa flow i dabbled uh, in the Hare krishna movement for a little bit um i've seen you know gurus from like ranging from like ama to uh, Chota Maharaj in India, you know, all sorts. I tried out many different things until uh, I've finally um, was just struck with what, with the school that made sense for me. So uh, to answer the question, this is to set out and explore, you know, pick up sacred texts and explore the different traditions and see which one calls to you. Mm -hmm. And when you feel, you know, it's a really subtle thing, but you know it when you know it. Uh, and when that calls to you, um, dive in. Uh, and diving in depends where you live, of course. Um, metropolitan areas are more abundant than others with, with great teachers, with uh, communities, with gatherings, uh, with gatherings which are called satsongs, um, which means, uh, you know, sort of similar like-minded beings get getting together to, to share and 
in food and wisdom um, and exploring that within your own community. Yeah. And uh, in, in what ways would you say that this experience can be enhanced using, you know, psychedelics or um, is it in, in what ways is it sufficient without the use of them? Uh, that is a uh, controversial question. And I, I think uh, many people will have very different answers to that. Uh, um, you know, there are many yogis who uh, will who think that inviting external chemicals into the mix is absolutely not necessary. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think, um, well, here's what I think. I think the, the answer to that question, the best model to look at is the story of Ram Dass, um, Richard Albert. When uh, before Richard Albert became Ram Dass, uh, when he was still at Millbrook in upstate New York with my dad, he was doing psychedelics every weekend and completely frustrated with the idea that you go up and you come down. And that when you come down, it's like, oh my God, you feel empty. And that spiritual connection you had faded away. And I became so frustrated with that. And then he went to India and he met a man who never came down, who was always there, you know, and who provided him a new map of consciousness. And that was Nimkaroli Baba. Uh, and gave him a whole new set of methods and tools to increase your connection. But Ramdas did not stop doing psychedelics after he met Neem Karoli Baba. Um, that's a really important distinction, and it is often miscommunicated and uh, within the spiritual communities that people say that Ramdas, well, he met Maharaji and then he never had to do psychedelics again. No, that is not true. He did continue to do psychedelics. But once he found a spiritual practice that he could do every day, the sort of the extreme kind of bell curve of kind of having to go up and go down became much, much more flat, much more uh, based on equanimity. So uh, methods are methods, man. It's like, being attached to any one method is going to only create attachment. You know, you can't be attached to them uh, in order to use them. You know, you have to be free to have them come and go, you know, and, and the second you become overly attached to them, then you become a zealot and a fanatic. And then you start saying that your method is better than the other person's and, and that you know, in my opinion, spiritual practice, the whole point of spiritual practice is to avoid getting to that point. Mm -hmm. It kind of shows that. Yeah, uh, I hope that made sense. Yes, uh, it kind of shows that um, in order to get the most benefit out of psychedelics, it's not just to pick them up and just start taking them immediately. You need to uh, know how to use them properly uh, along with you know, spiritual practice or or whatever, the, whatever this uh, method may be. And, uh, able to control absolutely absolutely yeah you cannot absolutely man it has to be an integrated part of, of your overall you know formula uh and like you said like you just said you have to be able to control it you can't let it control you 
that's when problems start to occur. Yeah. Um, I suppose another thing I wanted to get to was, uh, so you describe yourself as a futurist. So um, uh, in, in what ways would you uh, describe, so like what areas of futurism uh, you know, interest you or? Uh, well, I would look at it from an evolutionary standpoint. Uh, it's naive to think that human beings have stopped evolving. Mm -hmm. You know, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago, you know, we came from from the primordial ooze and sort of evolved as to sentient beings and became Homo sapiens. But we're not done doing that yet. You know, the human condition, uh, the Homo sapien, is not done evolving. And whether you like it or not, probably the most logical next step of evolution is going to be a fusion with technology. Um, you know, this brings up uh, images of cyborgs running wild with chips implanted into the brain and becoming mutant creatures of uh, cybernetic warfare or something, you know. Um, but there is going to be some kind of fusion with this whole web of technology that we've created and it's most likely the next step in evolution um so that's where i'm a futurist i think it's uh i think it's irresponsible to completely shun technology and and just push it away and and blatantly say you know reject and say oh my god we're using too much tech we've got to get back to nature um, true we do need to get back to nature but you cannot dismiss the tools that we have created for ourselves we have to learn to use them wisely and to apply them intelligently and to not let them control us you know they are just other their tools um, and i believe that you know the human being of the future our children and grandchildren are going to be the stewards of whether or not we've gotten this right um and of course the jury's still out uh, but the train has left the station, you know, the, we are living in the age of big data. We're living in the age of, of social networking, influencing our, our news intake, our idea intake, how we share information and, and disseminate misinformation. Uh, and we can see it going wrong all the time. So being a futurist is taking responsibility for those actions. Okay. Um, kind of like uh, with Neuralink just recently uh, uh, did a prototype of a pig where they put uh, their neural implant in, in there to, as a, you know, as a prototype demonstration. And so um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, yeah. <laughs> I believe that they, I believe they might be starting it with humans probably next year, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, Hey, I mean, if, if there is a safe way to implant a chip in my brain that's going to regulate my biological functions and uh, create the op optimal health of my heart and tell my smartphone when I'm getting too much cholesterol or what foods I should avoid or where my blood levels are at, my, you know, insulin levels, uh, you know, and just looking at my whole uh, physiology. Um, if there's a chip that can be implanted that can help with that, um, I say embrace it. Uh, fear is a powerful mechanism and that, uh, you know, it can immediately lead to 
my God, chips are going to be implanted into our brains and Big Brother is going to keep tabs on us and be able to control us and hack into I mean, there's a million dystopian fantasies that you could unravel from that. But uh, I, I choose to be an optimist. Or if, you, or if you want to use it to simulate a psychedelic experience as well. Hey, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose the, the last thing I wanted to ask you was uh, just, have you heard of uh, Alex Gray, the painter? Yeah, I love Alex Gray. Oh. He's a friend. Him and Allison are friends. And yeah. Yeah, so I just wanted to uh, ask you about uh, what you what you thought about his art and, uh, you know, how accurate you would uh, describe it uh, for a DMT experience or any I think Alex Gray, it, I, I, yeah, I think he is one of the few people ever that I've ever known of who can uh, express in a visual representation what the psychedelic experience looks like and thus feels like. Uh, somehow he's gotten it right. He has painted landscapes that, hey, they're representative of my experiences, no doubt. Um, and for that, I, I love Alex. And um, he's not only an incredible artist, but he's an incredible thinker and paradigm shifter. And what he's done with Cosm, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, and establishing community around that is uh, is fantastic. Alex is a hero. Do you think that maybe his work is uh, really doing a lot of work to, you know, try to put out some more, some more accurate information out there about psychedelics instead of simply some of the, uh, some of the misconceptions that we had before? Absolutely. I think Alex, uh, Alex's work, uh, and tells you that uh, don't worry, the water's safe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Jump in, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I just wanted to to use this last little bit here just to ask you, like, uh, uh, where where can people find you, and uh, what's some of your uh, more recent work that you've been doing? Uh, well. Um, Currently, I'm working on a book on psychedelic integration. Uh, the book is solely about integration. It's not about the history of psychedelics. Um, it's purely about how to integrate your psychedelic experience into daily life, um, thus equating with uh, that being the real work. You know, I don't believe the, the real work of psychedelics is what happens afterwards. It's not what happens during the trip. Um, and um yeah so i'm working on that the book is called and now the work begins a manual for psychedelic integration uh and uh and you can find me at uh zachleary.com uh the website's uh just down for, for the moment but it'll be relaunched uh within okay. a week okay i'm excited for that book to come out i'll have to check that out okay thank you and thanks for having me man it's yep. been a pleasure Th thanks for coming on yeah. Yeah, for sure. Talk to you soon. Namaste. Yeah, thanks, brother. Have a good one, man. Send me the link when it's ready. I will.